Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Maleksadeh. Have you ever wondered how you got where you are? Marveled at the forces that have shaped your life? This episode of And Justice For All is all about beginnings, specifically our beginnings at Roosevelt University. By understanding our unlikely, even heroic origin story and the road we have traveled for 75 years, we have a better grasp of where we are, where we're going, and why. Now, there's no better tour guide for our time travel than our guest today, Dr. Lynn Weiner. Lynn has had a long and storied career at Roosevelt, starting in the classroom as a history professor, becoming dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, and then becoming the university historian before retiring recently. We talked about bold beginnings, crazy plot twists, and famous people with guts. And you know what? Looking back, it all makes sense. We all stand on the shoulders of giants. Who are the giants of our generation? Lynn, welcome. Right. Welcome back to Roosevelt University. <laughs> <laughs> so Thank how you. many years were you at Roosevelt? I was uh, working at Roosevelt for about 25 years. Okay. And you know, during that time, obviously, you heard and used the phrase social justice, probably weekly, if not daily. Tell me, what is your concept of that? Where did it come from? And how did you deal with this progression through time? Well, I could start with the founding story of Roosevelt University, which is all about social justice. Even before I came to Chicago, I had heard of Roosevelt as a very progressive institution. And over the years, I learned the story, and I, I interviewed a lot of old-timers and, and alumni and uh, heard the story. And I think it's a very unique story in higher education. So Tell me about it. I can yeah, tell you about it. Please. There was another college in Chicago called the Central YMCA College that had been founded in about 1919. And at that time, and really until the 1960s, there were very few choices for higher education in Chicago. There was Northwestern University and the University of Chicago, both of them elite, both of them expensive, and most importantly for our story, both of them limited the number of black and Jewish students. Uh, they had admissions restrictions. They also often limited Catholic students as well. Uh, and that was common in American higher education. About 75% of all private universities did that. So Not diversity was excluded, is what you were saying? Completely excluded. Yeah. The preferred student was a white male Protestant. And they were often afraid that if they had too many of anybody else, it would defer the, their preferred <laughs> students from coming. So the University of Chicago, for example, limited the number of Jewish students to the per their percentage of the population in the city. Uh, Northwestern uh, limited both black and Jewish students by a very elaborate coded system on their applications. They asked for 
your parents' names, your grandparents' names, uh, the language spoken at home, and so on and so forth. And at Northwestern, uh, black students uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be given housing, even if they were admitted. So, and there was no University of Illinois yet. That was at, in Urbana-Champaign. Uh, it wasn't until the 19, uh, later 1940s that they had a two-year campus on Navy Pier, and not until the 1960s that they built their campus in Chicago. And most of the other institutions were either Catholic schools or teacher education or uh, professional schools of other, so there was nowhere to get a comprehensive education really, except for the YMCA college. And they admitted women as well as men and black and Jewish and Catholic students, but they had a very conservative board of trustees. And when a man named Edward Sparling came to be president in the middle 1930s, he was an idealist. And he came to this, was very excited, and he came to the YMCA college. And one of his first days here, an African-American student came to him to complain that he was paying an athletic fee, but he wasn't allowed to use the swimming pool. And President Sparling said, that can't be true. And he went to the trustees, and they said, well, the white students wouldn't like it if he used the swimming pool, so the black students can go somewhere else. So then he found out that black students were admitted to the school dances at the hotels. And what he did was he couldn't get the board to change the rules, so he eliminated sports <laughs> and he eliminated social events until they could be offered on an equal basis. Meanwhile, the board also didn't like the way things were going with academic freedom. The faculty wanted to teach classes on labor studies and race and religion. And they said that was too controversial. And in fact, they then said they were going to set up an audit system where trustees would go sit in classrooms and make sure that only the right things were being taught. Oh, wow. So the faculty began to get angry. And then it's the 1940s. We're at the war, but they know the war is going to end soon. And they want the president to do a survey of how many black and Jewish students he has. And he said, no, we don't count that way, he said. But they had done an earlier survey, and they found that about 25% of the students were black, and about a third of them were Jewish, and uh, a large number were Catholic, and there were even some Japanese students, which horrified them. So they went ahead and did another survey, and they found those numbers had increased. And they told the president he had to cut down on those admissions, and in fact, they wanted to impose a quota system, and he refused. He said, you know, I'm having trouble with this governance. Why don't we set up a new college called Thomas Jefferson College, and it can be attached to the YMCA, and they refused. So in April of 1945, he resigned, and he said, I'm committed to democracy and equal opportunity in education. So he had a lot of courage to do that because he didn't have another job. But then the faculty, 68 of them, the faculty and staff, they signed a letter and they too walked out. And a lot of them had young families and they had mortgages. They didn't know what was going to be next. But they said, we will not stay at a discriminatory institution. And then the next day, the students had a meeting and they too walked out, almost 500 of them. Oh, wow. And they said they supported the, the mission that their teachers were talking about. And I have a story of a woman named Lily Rose who was a 19-year-old refugee from Nazi Germany. And I met her when she was very old, and she was at that meeting. And she said, I was caught up in the idea of what was possible in America. It didn't matter what color you were. 
It didn't matter what your religion was. It didn't matter what shape your eyes were. I can't imagine anything in my life that was that exciting and that important. And so they all walked out. And then when Franklin Roosevelt died in April, they approached Eleanor and they asked if they could name the new school in honor of Franklin Roosevelt because of his work for democracy and social justice. And not only was she very excited about that, but she became the chair of a, of a board of advisors, which included all kinds of progressive Americans as it developed, including Albert Einstein and Pearl Buck and Marian Anderson and Ralph Munch and many others. Wow. They never met, but many of the individuals did come to Roosevelt to give lectures to students in the 1940s and 50s. So Eleanor Roosevelt visited the college many times until she died in 1963. And she would have tea with the students and she would give speeches and she would help with fundraising and donors and all that kind of stuff. And in the fall of 1945, she dedicated Roosevelt College to the enlightenment of the human spirit through the constant search for truth and to the growth of the human spirit through knowledge, understanding, and goodwill. And later, the college was renamed, rededicated to include Eleanor as well as Franklin and were the only institution, I think, in the world named for both Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. And what's really great is the Roosevelt connection continued because her son John became a trustee and was a trustee for many years. And then her granddaughter, Anna Eleanor Roosevelt, much more recently became a trustee uh, until she retired and moved to Maine. So the Roosevelt family has had this long uh, connection with Roosevelt. Right. Wow. So social justice means, goes to the fabric of this institution, and you have seen that. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you, there are several ways that social justice, particularly in the early years, mm -hmm. was established uh, at Roosevelt. One way was with the faculty. And at that time, really until the mid-1960s when the law changed and uh, discrimination mm -hmm. in many realms was made illegal, until that time most professors in the United States were white male Protestants. There were very few women. Even when I went to college in the late 1960s, I think I only had two women professors. Mm -hmm. But at Roosevelt, they had men and women, they had African-American professors, some of them very famous, like St. Clair Drake, the sociologist, and Lorenzo Turner, the linguist. They had European refugees, Catholics, teachers from India, teachers from China, and Latin America at the beginning. In fact, the first athletic director, because it impacted the staff too, was an African-American man named Edwin Turner. And in the true Roosevelt way, he coached everything, <laughs> every, every sport. But when he, he coached golf, he wasn't allowed on the golf courses. So someone had to relay you know, the, the doings to him away from there. I think he was the first black coach at an integrated school. The students were even more diverse. When we were founded, classes began in the fall of 1945. The national press swarmed Roosevelt, and they would go into the classrooms, and they wrote these columns about the astonishing thing that they saw. And what was astonishing was that there were all kinds of students there. As one newspaper said, the students were Chinese, Japanese, Negro, Levantine, Jews, Catholics, and Down East Yankees. They had these headlines, and they called us things like Chicago's Equality Lab, or a model of democracy in education. 
One professor later said that the first students were the most challenging, argumentative, and alert I have ever had. It is the feeling of their rights as persons which makes so many of them wish to question us or add to the discussion. The trustees, we were the first board of trustees that had an African-American member, and that was Percy Julian, who was a very famous chemist. But we also had members of the press, labor, management, and faculty on the early board of trustees and the curriculum. From the beginning, we had African-American studies, labor studies, Jewish studies. We had classes in social activism. All that kind of stuff was from the very beginning. And they had what they called community institutes so they could bring the public into these interdisciplinary meetings, kind of like the American Dream Conference, you know, kind of very similar to that. And, and we'll come back to the American Dream Conference, but, you know, what is stunning about this history of the university is how progressive this university was founding with the story that you were telling in the classroom, in the diversity of the faculty, in the students, international, global, and how that tradition has stayed within the university. And in a way, the colleges across the U.S. are trying to catch up, still trying to catch up. They are, although most universities now claim that social justice is part of their mission, but we did it before it was fashionable, <laughs> and we did it when it was controversial. Because right. let me tell you a little more. Yeah. The first students in about the from the beginning to about the first 10 years were extremely socially active. Mm -hmm. They had a social action committee that organized a protest at a roller skating rink on the south side which wouldn't admit blacks. They picketed restaurants in the loop. On the south side, it wouldn't admit Of Chicago. Yeah. They, they picketed restaurants, they picketed stores that discriminated. All of the dances and social activities were integrated. Uh, they voted not this story, I didn't know this story originally, but they voted not to allow a chapter of the American Red Cross on the campus at a time when the Red Cross was entering colleges all over the country because the Red Cross at that time segregated blood so that, quote, those receiving transfusions will be given plasma from blood of their own race. And until that changed, the students said, oh, wow. they weren't going to accept them. Wow. They protested racist real estate practices in 1947. And in 1948, they hosted the formation of the first fraternity in the United States that was racially and religiously integrated. And it was called Beta Sigma Tau. Uh -huh. uh, one of my favorite stories is that in the early 1950s, the students for several years had what they called D-Day, which meant Discrimination Day. <laughs> and on D-Day, every year, they barred access to the library and the elevators and certain floors from students who had mustaches or were short or didn't have freckles. And the idea was to show that physical attributes, how ridiculous it was to use those to discriminate. And the Ebony magazine covered this, and they called it a prank with a purpose. Yeah, I saw pictures of that. I think in the TV outside yes. we have right. uh, pictures of that where they're making fun of. Right. We have those yeah. in, our, in our photo history. Uh, oh, wow. from D-Day, which is pretty great. Well, you know, the story you were mentioning, and you were talking about 40s and 50s, this is 50, 60 years ahead of everybody else in the U.S. There are still lynchings in the South. Uh, Chicago is, as it continues to be, incredibly segregated by race and religion. Right. And there's discrimination is absolutely embedded in, in everything we do. One of the 
interesting outcomes of the students, faculty, and staff doing what they thought was right was that in 1949, the Illinois State Legislature decided to investigate the presence of communism at <laughs> Roosevelt because of these activities. And a story that uh, uh, an older staff person told me when I first got here was that they came racing into the lobby and they asked the person at the desk, we want to find where the communists are at Roosevelt. And she looked at them and said, I suggest you go up to the library and look under C in the card catalog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they did this huge report, thousands of words, uh -huh. and they found no evidence of you know, un-American activity. Right. But, but because of that, and because of these other activities I mentioned, for many years in Chicago, Roosevelt was called the Little Red Schoolhouse. And we had difficulty in fundraising from mm -hmm. the business community, which is ironic because Marshall Field was one of our first big donors. He really believed in the mission of Roosevelt, wow. as did many others. You are listening to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. I mean, this is quite a story, and you know, I'm glad we're hearing it from you as the university historian and a member of the faculty. Now, talk a little bit about the faculty and you know, in the various disciplines, and especially in arts and sciences, how they were happy to be here, who they were, and you know, some of those things. That's, a, that's also a great story. When Roosevelt was first founded and the press started commenting on how unusual it was. They had over a thousand professors around the country sending their applications, even though they would take a pay cut, because our pay was never particularly high, <laughs> uh, because they wanted to be part of this. They wanted to, to, to be part of this experiment in democracy. And um, we have always had professors to this day who have other choices. They could be at richer schools, larger schools, but they choose to be here because this mission of democracy and social justice is so embedded in everything we do. Plus, our students are, are really great. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, on that, as you mentioned, the students, as I talk to prospective students, and also those who may sign up, uh, why did you choose us? Invariably, they mention social justice for the reason to consider us even well, before coming. Well, and you asked me just before, how has it continued and mm -hmm. one one of the many ways it's continued is that our notion of inclusivity has continued to broaden to include LGBTQ students, mm -hmm. to include undocumented students, to include differently abled students, um, and to help students of, of all kinds have the opportunity to study here. Right. And you know to achieve their American dream. Now, the whole notion of American dream, of course, has changed through the decades. And you have, I'm sure, some thoughts on that. You co-chaired the American Dream Conference for us for the past two years. And you saw what collectively we, we tried to do and continue to do. Talk about that notion and how it changed from your perspective in the 60s and 70s, and especially among our diverse faculty, staff, students. Well, you know, when we talk about the American dream, I always like to caution people that at the very beginning when immigrants first came to this country, there were already people here. 
And so their American dream came at, at a cost. And part of our story is the, the other side of that, which includes the displacement of the Native Americans, slavery, the exploitation of Chinese and other workers. So that has always been part of it. But in the 1930s, only about 15 years before Roosevelt was founded, there was a writer who defined the American dream in a book the way that it's considered today. He said, the American dream is that dream of a land where life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to their ability or achievement. So when the war was ending, a lot of people said, well, we fought for democracy and an end to discrimination and dictatorship around the world. Why can't we do that in our own country? Why can't we bring democracy home? And so the American dream for many began to see uh, the ability for all people to have the opportunity to improve their lives. I, my grandparents hardly spoke English, but for them, the American dream was their children and grandchildren to be educated because they believed that education was the way that people can have the choices in life that would help them achieve their own dreams. Now, on that one, a year or so ago, you shared a transcript with me from St. Clair Drake regarding the American dream as an African-American scholar. And I think he went from here to Stanford mm -hmm. as a professor in Stanford. And his notion of American dream was not the picket fence and you know two cars and a garage and so forth. It goes back to what you just said. Talk to me at that moment about the history of American dream and for African Americans and also for the Jewish community in Chicago. I think for both groups and other groups, the American dream would be to have the same access to education, to employment, as anybody else. Everybody in the world wants the same thing. Everybody. They want safety. They want health. They want to be able to raise their children in happiness. They want success for them and their children. There's no group, I don't think, that doesn't want that. And the idea here was if we're a democracy, everybody should have the same opportunity to achieve what they will. When you think about the first students at Roosevelt in the 1940s and early 50s, they included like they include today, a lot of first-generation students mm -hmm. who didn't have a culture of college going as uh, more privileged families have. And they included people like, say, Harold Washington, who became the first black mayor of Chicago and was the president of the student government. And here at Roosevelt. Here at Roosevelt. Yeah. And when someone once asked him, Mayor Washington, and he had been a congressman before he was the mayor, Mayor Washington, how do you explain your success? And he said, go down to Roosevelt and visit those students. They're mm -hmm. just like me. Mm -hmm. And he came to Roosevelt many times to say that. Someone like James Foreman, who was one of the leaders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, was also the head of the student government <laughs> when he was here at Roosevelt. We graduated at least seven people who went on to become members of the US Congress and including right now uh, Bobby Rush and Mike Quigley, Mike Quigley and yeah. in the recent past Melissa Bean. 
Right. We have the current Librarian of Congress is a Roosevelt graduate, Carla Hayden. Right. We have graduated people from the African American and Jewish community who didn't have other choices when they came to Roosevelt and went on to become very successful. Think of Shel Silverstein, uh, the writer, Ramsey Lewis, the musician, and so many more. Okay. Now, besides obviously African Americans and Jewish students, talk to me about gender equality at Roosevelt and why is it that we have such successful equality and now you know, as you know, the majority of our students are women and incredibly successful faculty who are women. Talk to me about that. Well, the majority of students are, are women everywhere. That's the demographic of, of course. college. Right. Not everywhere, but most places. But there was a very conscious notion that women should be professors. There could have been more. They still weren't, weren't anywhere near parity, but they, weren't, mm -hmm. they didn't have the degrees as they do now, the same proportion as men do. But we had women professors in most fields beginning in, in 1945 and through the early 50s. We had some very famous ones. Uh, there was a professor of education who established a TV show called Ding Dong School, which was the first <laughs> children's television. There was a professor of modern dance. There was a philosopher named Estelle DeLacy. There were many, many others. Rose Humley was a sociologist. Uh, she was Chinese-American and the first woman to get, a, I think, a PhD in sociology in, in the United States, something like that. So we had a number of women from the very beginning, staff. Now, the, there, there was even an early dean, the first, I believe, the first or second dean of music was a woman, and she was on the board of trustees also, named Maddie Bacon. So we, we had a tradition of women being actively engaged and, of course, the students. Right. And, you know, we've seen that as more women, successful professors have become department chairs, associate deans, deans, provosts, and, you know, making their way up the rank. And mm -hmm. I, I know that that's the future of the university. It, without uh, a doubt. Know, uh, for me, being the sixth president, I can guarantee the seventh president will be a woman. Well, okay. well that, that's so one, <laughs> one place we're not as uh, advanced as many other institutions, but eventually we will have a woman yeah. president for sure. There's no reason. We, and we've had women candidates right. for probably the last several searches. Well, nationally, so. there are about 30% of the women, of the presidents of uh, colleges and universities are women, which is a higher percentage than the Congress and the government, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. I was the first woman dean of the College of Arts and Sciences here. But, but then again, that I'm in the generation that, that began mm -hmm. to get into college administration, really, in a big way. So we also had, we were one of the earliest schools to have African American studies and women's studies mm -hmm. uh, in the 1960s and 70s mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Well, you know, fast forwarding to today, I will share with you this anecdote that, you know, I was somewhere recently and a gentleman came up to me and objected to the fact that we have women's studies and African-American studies at Roosevelt University in 2018. And, you know, that was my reaction. Huh? And what did really? And what did, why, was, why did he object to it? It was two leftists. 
Oh, well. And I wanted to bring him over here and show them the wall outside about yeah, the yeah. Red School and he so forth. He should sit in some classes and learn something. Don't that. you think? I, th I think that would be pretty great. Yeah. We actually had, in the 19, late 60s or early 70s, uh, an issue of The Torch that talked about gay and lesbian, mm -hmm. uh, the gay and lesbian movement for equal rights. Right. That was very early. And at Roosevelt, when I came, I think people were still sometimes closeted, reflecting the larger community. But I think, you know, with the president before you, President Chuck Middleton, I believe he was the first openly gay man to be a president of a university in the United States. Mm -hmm. And things began to change. Right. So, you know, that's been part of our legacy. And again, every man or woman you talked about, every student, no matter what their origin is and what their ethnicity is, religion is. And it's such a joy to go up and down the elevators, you know, on a daily basis and see the diversity of our students. Uh, I will share with you also that at the same time that we are a safe building, the campus, so forth, I have been to student forums when they talk about how they were harassed on the way to the university. They were harassed on the L. They were touched inappropriately. And it just, but they felt safe inside the university. And you know, that's what, what we can do is provide that environment when every student is safe and wants to study what she wants to study and you know, pursue their American dream. That's right. Talk to me a little bit about how you felt when you were able to invite through our contacts, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, <laughs> to come here as a keynote for the American Dream. And the students who were there and the young women who were in the audience, talk to me about that. Well, when, <laughs> when you formed the American Dream idea, you had said, think big, <laughs> if you recall. And I was interested in Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but particularly because Dean Henry Fogel of the College of Performing Arts said to me he knew her son because he was on the board of another institution and that he would, you know, work to see if we could get a contact. Um, and Jim Ginsburg did that for us and I have saved and will save forever the email I got from Ruth Bader Ginsburg <laughs> myself. Because, and, and also the, the email from him where he said, a mom will contact you, you know, like that. But when she came, we filled the auditorium theater to capacity. And with uh, Judge Williams as um, Williams. the moderator, yeah. she gave a wonderful talk. And that was a talk that actually got a lot of national press because she said at that time when someone asked, we had students submit questions and someone said, how long will you be on the Supreme Court? And she said, as long as I can continue full steam. And she told her own story of being the daughter in an immigrant household and going to law school and the discrimination she faced and all the way to the story of her being on the Supreme Court. Uh, and it was, it was an electrifying evening. I was, it was one of the happiest things I've done here was to help. I was one of many other people, many people were involved in that. But to be part of that was really exciting. See, the, that evening, to me, what was stunning when I looked at the audience is first, 
Bobo, how many young 14, 15, 16 year old people were there and women, especially young girls, and each with a t-shirt that said Notorious RBG on it. Yeah. And when I mentioned that phrase, the place went berserk, yeah. you know, as if we have the Beatles over here you yeah. know, from the 60s and all that. And then, you know, the part that you and I may have talked about is after this talk, I was walking down Michigan Avenue and there was a whole crowd coming out of auditorium and a whole bunch of us were walking for a long time down Michigan and the crowd, the, uh, the aura of the crowd, of how she, you know, Justice Ginsburg had talked about women, about equality, and they just couldn't stop talking about it. This horde of people. Well, the fact that we had Ruth Bader Ginsburg and that we may have another justice in, in a year or two for the American dream, I know we're working on it. And it's, that we it's had. It's confirmed. And that we. It's confirmed. That's confirmed. And yes. that we had Justice William Douglas. We gave him an honorary degree about 20 years ago. So that's three Supreme Court justices. I think that's a pretty good record for a small I, I university. So, I mean, again, kudos to you for that evening. Uh, and the you know, capstone of the evening for me was when the final question to Justice Ginsburg, I think was from the students, was, okay, so how many women should we have on the Supreme <laughs> Court? And instantly she said, well, nine, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and the place would just explode. Yeah. Huh? Why that, not? <laughs> that, was, that, that was wonderful. But uh, we continue to have interesting speakers and interesting people. And the important thing is not only to, to do that for our community, for our students, for friends of the university, but to bring Roosevelt's story to these speakers so that they can learn about us. And, you know, one day last summer, I was walking down again, uh, Michigan Avenue, it was in the morning. I was getting my coffee in one of the places, walked out, and somebody said, you know, President, President, and, you know, who are they talking about? Eventually, I turned around, and this woman turned to me and said, well, you don't know me. I'm just somebody from the community, and I attended the American Dream Conference, and I am so glad Roosevelt University is putting this program for the community free of charge, and please continue to do that. And it felt so good. Yeah. So kudos to you and your team to have designed this thing. It's part of, it's part of what Roosevelt does. Like I said, yeah. they had these meetings from, from 1945 on where they would take what they thought were important issues of the day and have lectures throughout a week and invite the whole Chicago community to come right. hear them. Well, fast forward, you spent, you know, most of your career at Roosevelt University, having gone through the ranks. And you know, you and I worked when you were here as a historian. I relied on you on most of the things I said in public, which was great because nobody threw you know, tomatoes at me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, talk to me about one or two anecdotes from your long career here that sticks the most in your mind as uh, success, as, uh, hey, this was wonderful when I was here, this is what happened, besides the things we Well, I about. have a million of them, but one of them was the opportunity I had when I retired from being the dean and became the historian, I, I traveled around the country, I would meet people who, who told me stories, oh. and uh, a great one was when an elderly man 
said the highlight of his college career at Roosevelt was w when he was in the elevator and someone tapped him on the shoulder and he turned around and it was Eleanor Roosevelt who was really tall, I want to say six feet tall, and she said, young man, you'd better be studying hard because this <laughs> university is named for my husband. And that stuck with him the entire time. But in teaching, I think uh, history is a really central discipline, and it's a, right now nationally, it's on a decline. It's a, it's cyclical, you know. But it's a shame that more people aren't taking history. I remember, I used to love teaching the introductory courses to students who didn't know or remember much history, and I would always, in those classes, assign a novel. They could pick a novel to read. And I remember one student read Native Son. And when she was giving her report, she started crying, and she said, I've never read a novel like this or understood how it was part of history. So that really touched me a lot, too. And, you know, you mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt, of course, in her daily column. She, you have reminded me and shared with me as well of how often she talked about that Roosevelt College yeah. in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Uh, the place where democracy happened, when citizenship happened, when equality happened. She had a great quote in one of those where she said, democracy is not about words, it's about action. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what we try to hold on to even now, almost 75 years in 2020, since our founding. Because in, in recent years, uh, we've endorsed national movements on the environment, on immigrant and refugee rights, and undocumented students, and other contemporary issues, and that's democracy in action. And, you know, to bring our discussion to a conclusion, today is probably even more important where we are as a nation on equality, justice, immigration, human rights, Without and a so doubt. forth because of all the things that are happening in Washington and here we are dealing with those. Right, and one of the, the wonderful things about the American Dream Conference is that we've tried to create a space for multiple points of view where it's okay to have differences. You can have a civil discussion and uh, that's something we have to pursue. Yeah, and that's what the university is all about. That's well, right. Thank you so much. My pleasure for being here and all, everything that you have done for this university throughout your history. It, I'll tell you, the privilege is mine for being able to be associated with a place that is unique and a wonderful institution. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>